0: Well, good morning again, Silicon Bible Church. Years ago, our youth group had an event, a game we played called Bigger and Better. And it's a simple game, really. Uh, What you do is you divide the group up into teams, and you uh, hand the leader of each team a paperclip. And you give them a paperclip and a deadline, and you tell them by this time arrive back here at church with something bigger and better. And the person who, the team who returns with the biggest and best thing, will receive a reward. And so we sound the buzzer, and everybody went off to random houses, friends, neighbors, uh, people that they just happened to show up at their house and ring the doorbell, and they. Stood there at the first house with their paperclip and said, "Hi, New York the Bible Church. I have this paperclip, and we are in a competition, and we want to trade this paperclip for something bigger and better." And then you would be amazed how, what people are willing to get rid of. Uh, and uh, and and they they would trade around, and and at the end of the night, I think the winner. Had successfully traded enough times, team had traded enough times so that they had traded their paperclip eventually for a treadmill that came back to church. Now, you might be thinking, "Yeah, I'm not sure if that's better or not," uh, but I think we can all agree that it is better than a paperclip, even if you don't particularly relish the idea of a treadmill being present in your life right now. Um, but in any case, it was bigger and better, far better than a paperclip. And uh, I I was thinking about that goofy game this week a bit as I reflected on what God has promised to give us at the end of all of our history on this planet. We are looking forward not just to the wedding supper of the Lamb, although we are looking forward to that event. Uh, We're not looking forward simply to reigning with Christ in the Millennial Kingdom, although we are looking forward to that as well. We are also looking forward to living with him and reigning with him forever, face to face, live and in person, in the eternal state, in the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, as the scripture calls it. And last week we saw God uh, reveal these majestic promises of making all things new. Behold, he said. In other words, listen up. I'm making all things new. And we saw that in the making of all things new, there will no longer be any sea. Because there will not be storms and dangers anymore. There will be the end of tears. There will be the end of death. The end of mourning. The end of uh Pain, as the old order of things passes away, all these things will disappear. And this week we get to see how the new heaven and the new earth is much bigger and much better than anything that we experience in this life. In fact, it is better both than Jerusalem, this earthly Jerusalem that we can see and visit now. And much better even than the Garden of Eden, which we cannot see and don't know where it was exactly right now. Now, I'm excited to show you these things in God's Word. So, uh, if you aren't there yet, I invite you to turn with me over to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. We're going to go all the way down through chapter 22 and verse 5 this week. And then next, week we're going to wrap up this study, believe it or not, in the book of Revelation. So, uh, it's going to be exciting. Now, I want to read for us, and since we're reading God's word and it is His word to us, I encourage you to stand with me, if you can, uh, as we read the word together. Beginning verse 9, chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the land. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold and measured the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of Jasper, while the city was pure gold and much clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was Jasper, the second Sapphire, the third Agate, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Onyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth Geryl the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates were made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which is twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the land will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. It will need no light of lamp or sun, but the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, we have these magnificent, amazing, incredible promises about our eternal home with you. And Father, we pray that you would help us not only to see and understand these things, but also, Father, to see and understand how to live in light of these promises and how you intend for our lives to be transformed in the here and now today because of these promises you've made to us. And Father, I pray that we might look forward to the day when we might glorify and enjoy you forever by doing so today as we gather together in worship. Father, help us by your Holy Spirit to glorify and enjoy your presence with us in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, this is a magnificent section of scripture. It's one that I read portions of for every funeral that I do. Because it is a reminder to people who are grieving that there is a day coming when these things will not obtain anymore. I I caused a minor stir, in fact, uh, some months ago at a funeral that I did um, because I said that I was not going to be buying my funeral plot. I'm only renting it. Because my body will not stay there forever. Amen? Amen. And yours will not either. I, I'm told that Margaret Curder down at the city office uh, was uh, displeased with me because there were people who inquired about how they might rent one instead of mine. <laughs> but, but in any case, that is true. There will be a day when death shall be no more. And we will dwell in God's presence, face to face. Uh, Because, and what what we see in the first section of this, uh, uh, the remainder of chapter 21, verses 9 to 26, is that eternal life with God is much better than Jerusalem. You see, for a Jew like John, John and the earliest Christians were all Jewish men. Jewish men and women. And... And for them, the city of Jerusalem was the world's greatest, most glorious, best place. They viewed it literally not only as the center of God's plan for the world, but as the geographical center. In fact, if you do push the continents together, it just so happens that Jerusalem is smack dab in the middle of all of the countries of the world. It was the place where God's temple stood. It was the place where God's presence was visibly present above this building where the temple was. It was the center of worship. It was the center of life. You always went up to Jerusalem from everywhere else in the land to go and worship God. And it was the glorious ancient city that was dedicated to God and to his covenant and to his people. But what John sees is that when this world is destroyed and a new one comes into being, that what is good about this one will be so transformed that it will be better than anything ever that has ever come before then. I want to look at these verses with you and just highlight some of the magnificence of this place. Uh, If you look at, at verses 9 through 11, what you see there is John being invited by one of the angels, one of the seven angels who poured out God's last plagues at the end of the tribulation, is the same angel who takes him uh, by the hand in the spirit of God's power to uh, go and see what he describes as the wife of the Lamb. And what he sees is not a person, but a place. He sees the dwelling place where the bride dwells. A holy city, the new Jerusalem, untainted by sin that replaces the present Jerusalem that has seen so much of it. Remember, the Jewish people, because of their sin, have been exiled and and cast out of Jerusalem twice. There is no temple in Jerusalem now because there is instead a, a mosque standing on the site where it was, proclaiming a blasphemous version of the true God. And that will one day be destroyed. And the present Jerusalem and all of its sin will also be destroyed to be replaced one day by the new Jerusalem. And this, is called, this, this place is called the Bride because the city is the dwelling place of the Lamb's Bride, the unified people of God. Now let me explain what I think is going on here. I'm going to get more into the construction and dimensions and all that. But let me explain a little bit about ancient Jewish marriage custom and, and house construction. Now, trust me when I say this is relevant, so pay attention. If you were the patriarch of a Jewish family, what you did was you built yourself the centerpiece of a house. And uh, you would raise your children there uh, with your wife, and then as your children grew up, the sons would go off to get married. And when they got married, they would not go build their own house. What they would do is they would uh, become betrothed to their bride, and then there would be a waiting period between the betrothal and the day when the bride was brought home. And in that time, what you did was you built onto the father's house a place for you and your bride to live. And then as there were other sons in the family, they would build on additional spaces in the house, and you could even go up stories and so forth, but you would build dwelling places for each member of the family in this house around what eventually became a centralized courtyard. So you had have private space for each member of the family, and then a courtyard where you fellowship together in the middle. Now let me explain why that's relevant. Jesus has betrothed himself to us. And one day he is taking us home to the Father's house. Amen? Amen. And in the Father's house there are many dwelling places. Many rooms. You feel me? And, And this one is in particular huge. This is an amazing place. And it is a place that reflects glory of God among the unifying people of God. The city, it says, reflects his glory like a rare, clear, polished jewel, which the text identifies, if you look at it, as a jasper. But you need to know that since the ancient world, uh, the names of various kinds of gemstones have changed. And... Uh, What is here identified as a jasper is what you and I would know today as a diamond. Now, those of you who are men who, like me, have shopped for diamonds, you understand there are four important Cs that go along with that, right? you're a young man, listen here. This is important. You need to one day find a bride, and when you do, she'll want a diamond. And so you need to look for color and the cut and the clarity, because this is a, a, an object made of carbon, and the, the higher the grade of diamond, the fewer little occlusions of carbon there are in that. And so if it's the more clear that it is, you get the fourth C, cost. <laughs> right? And the bigger and the clearer and the more beautiful and sparkly, the richer the colors that you see reflected in the light, the more valuable that diamond. And this one is clear, completely. And it shines with the glory of God. The city is sparkling with the beauty of God's presence and of his people's presence. In verses 12 to 14, uh, you see a description of the wall around the city that symbolizes God's protection of his people, but I believe it's also a literal reality. It's a square wall forming the 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 border around a square city. And each it has twelve gates, three on each side of the square. Each of the gates is inscribed with one of the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, and there is an angel, presumably acting as a guard, at each one of the gates. It's a secure place. There are three tribes, uh, the names of three tribes on each gate, on each on all four sides of the city, and it ought to remind you, if you if you will, of. When Israel was encamped around the tabernacle in the wilderness, how there were three tribes encamped on each side of the tabernacle. Because as God's presence dwelt in that place, so it will be in this place. Uh, The wall itself has 12 foundation stones, each bearing the names of one of the 12 apostles. And the fact that the gates are named for the tribes... And the walls have as their foundations the names of the apostles are, I think, meant to indicate that this is the dwelling place of the unified people of God. Old Testament as well as New Testament. Those who anticipated the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, those who look back on the coming of, the, of Christ in the New Testament era, that's us and everybody from Pentecost on, uh, that we are all together in this place. Both Old Covenant believers and New Covenant believers are all together in this place uh, with our Savior and with our God. Verses 15 to 21 tell us how the city is constructed. As I said, it's square. It measures 12,000 stadia on a side and 12,000 high. Um, Just in case you're a little light on your ancient math conversion factors. Let me just translate that for you into figures that you and I would understand. That equates to 1,380 miles, long and wide and high. It's big. Uh, to put that in, on, in geography that you might get, it is about the distance from the northern edge of Duluth, Minnesota, all the way to New Orleans is one side of this city. So if it dropped on the United States as it currently exists, it would occupy most of the land area of a big chunk of the U.S. as it sits. It's a huge, huge city. And uh, to give you an idea of how far above the earth this extends, Scientists debate and and differ as to where exactly the Earth's atmosphere stops. But let me explain it this way. About 95% of all of the atmosphere of the Earth exists within the first 15 miles above the Earth's surface. And most scientists draw a line somewhere around 600 miles above the Earth's surface where outer space really begins. Where where what is out there is really not atmosphere anymore. It might, there might be a few particles of gas still escaping out there along the edges, out beyond 600 miles, but at 600 miles out, you are really on the edge of space. This city is twice that tall. Twice that tall. So whatever the new creation is like, it is safe to say it is not like the present one. And that different rules apply. You can't build a city that tall in the present creation, under the present uh, way that physics and construction materials work. This city is humongous and accommodates all of the people whom God has saved, all of the ones whom he will save in the future. Uh, there was actually a scholar who did a calculation based on the idea of there being several billion people resident in this giant skyscraper of a city. And he concluded that even given several billion people within it, we'd each get about 75 acres of space each. It's humongous. And uh, all of the glories of the kings of the earth are coming into this. It's amazing. The wall is 144 cubits thick, which equates to 216 feet. Which to give you an idea, I think that's roughly the distance from that wall to the parking lot. It's a thick wall. (coughs) It's also a beautiful place. The walls are made of a solid, clear jewel like a diamond. And the city itself is made of clear, pure gold. Now again, we don't have gold that when it gets purified gets transparent in our world today. But that's the closest John can approximate to what he's seeing this is a secure place. It's a beautiful place because the foundation stones are adorned with 12 kinds of precious gems. In fact, all of the precious gems that are listed there are also the ones that adorn the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. The 12 gates are each made of a huge single pearl. I don't know what kind of an oyster that comes out of <laughs> but a big one. It's safe to say that, right? And they're all made of a a pure, pure gold. And it is a beautiful place. The idea, by the way, of all of these descriptions is that the most precious things in this world, pearls, jewels, gold, diamonds, are the equivalent of concrete Asphalt and steel. Now think about this. You do not buy asphalt by the carrot. <laughs> right? Or concrete by the ounce. Right? You buy concrete by the yard and you kind of sell it by volume. Because it's not its not an uncommon or rare substance. You make parking lots out of it. You build, you you build, uh, you build walls and foundations and so forth out of it. It's it's a common, cheap, strong material. Same thing with asphalt, which is basically tar and gravel. Gold is the pavement of heaven. Think about that. Jewels the concrete what you make walls out of there. Pearls replace wrought iron. Think about this. This is amazing. It tells us, I don't know if these are intended to be exactly literal descriptions. I have no problem if they are. Or if they're intended to communicate to us the idea that that which is highly valued and treasured, that which men and women give their lives for, are worth essentially nothing there. Why is that? And I think verses 22 to 26 answer that question. It's because the treasure of heaven is not found in gold or jewels or pearls, but in the person who dwells at the center of Of the place. God our Father and the Lamb our God are there. Better than the present Jerusalem, there's not only no temple, there's also no need for one. Because all who dwell there are living in direct, face to face contact with God Himself. all of the glories of all of the kings of the earth and you know i don't know if you've ever seen even pictures of the crown jewels of england as an example those are those are just shadows of the glories of the king of creation the real glory king dwells in this place And the best things of this world, the scripture says, the treasures and glories of the nations are brought into this place, which I I believe is is telling us that the things that are the best things of this world are transformed and brought into this city where they can be used for their true purpose, which is the glorification of the heavenly king. I think that means that we are going to all bring something of our talents, something of the things that we take holy pleasure in, something of the things that that God has given us that bring us joy and bring them into this place and use them for our worship for all eternity. Because, see, in this world, we believe in... And, and the scripture tells us this is true. That everything that we are is in some ways touched and tainted and limited and constrained by the fact that we have a sin nature. Why do we get old? Why does our hair turn gray or turn loose? Why do we get creaky? You know, you, have you seen those commercials? that are like, it's an insurance commercial and they say, we can't keep you from becoming your parents. We can save you money on car insurance or whatever. Right? Okay. Eventually, we all become our parents. Why? Because the effects of sin on our bodies and on our souls over time, and it wears us down. And so, and so, and so, preachers in this world are limited because of the effects of sin and their ability to proclaim the glories of Christ and the magnificence of his salvation. But there we won't be. If you're an artist right now, you know that there is a gap between what you see in your head and what you want to create and your hands and their ability to bring it forth. If you are a musician, you you know that there are compositions that you would like to write but you can never quite get the notes quite on the page. Why? Because of sin. And the effects of sin on your mind and on your body and on your soul. If you're a craftsman, you can do the best that you can to make something and it always kind of fall short of what you would like it to be. But in this place, the glories of the nations, the best that we have to offer, will be set free, untainted by sin, and used for the glory of God. We will be able to proclaim and glorify and exalt our King without any limitations imposed by sin whatsoever. And notice what's missing. I love this. I love the things that are absent from this place. Last week we saw there's no seed, there's no tears, there's no mourning, no pain, no death. Here there's also... No night and no sin. It's never dark. Now, when I'm out in the woods and it gets dark at night, I don't worry too much. Because I'm the baddest, most dangerous thing out there. (laughs) Me and the shotgun, right? But, if I am alone in an unfamiliar neighborhood and it gets dark and I hear footsteps behind me all of a sudden I am four years old and I'm afraid of the dark amen and I'm thinking you know you guys should have a concealed carry permit about now (laughs) right I'm thinking that why because the dark is where the predators draw near amen It's when the bears and the lions and the tigers and the criminals go out looking for that which they can devour. It's why the cops go out primarily at night. And in the daytime they write speeding tickets. Right? Uh, They are look because they, they know that the darkness provides cover for those who want to do evil. There will be no more darkness here. It will never be night there. And there will be nothing fearful that dwells and stalks in this place. And there will be no more sin. No one and nothing that is unclean will ever enter it, or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only. He or she whose name is written in the book of life. It will not be possible to be to, to sin and it will not be possible to be a sinner and dwell here. Only God and His holy people, those whom He has made holy through faith in the blood of the Lamb, who has washed them clean in the blood of His Son, will be dwelling in this place. It will be so much better than even the best of cities in our world. And, if you got a few minutes, hang in here and look at verses 22 25. How it's better even than the Garden of Eden. Look at this. If the description of what we've seen so far were not good enough, it gets even better. The place is much better than Eden. There is no sea, but there is the ever-flowing river of the water of life. Alongside the river on both sides so that everybody can access it is the tree of life growing. And it gives 12 different kinds of fruit every month. Now, in our world, trees don't give fruit every month. They barely give fruit for a month. But this one has has 12 different kinds of fruit every month. Now, I don't know if in, in the eternal state we will eat and drink or not. I kind of think that we will. I think that we will enjoy many of the pleasures and glories of life now in a transformed way there and then. But the idea here is that there is abundance. That you need never get thirsty. That you need never grow hungry or grow tired of eating the same old thing all the time. There will be tremendous variety and great abundance. And also, we know this, that remember in the Garden of Eden what happened? They were cursed. They were banished from God's presence. They were forbidden from eating of the tree of life. And, as we read in Genesis chapter 5, because of that, there was death and death and death and death and death, and death and generation to generation that followed. But here, there is the tree of life widely and freely available. Here, the water of life is free for anyone to drink from. The very thing that Adam and Eve were banned from eating from is available to all of the redeemed and abundant and buried crops all year long. The curse that came through sin is gone because sin is gone. You see that? There will be nothing accursed there. In the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman, because of their sin and their shames, took leaves from a tree and sewed together clothes to cover themselves. Remember? You see here, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. All of our sin, all of our shame, every bit of guilt and embarrassment that we feel over the fact that we're sinners is removed curse is gone. Our sin is gone. And no more will we be banished from God's presence because of these things. We will live with Him face to face forever and ever and ever and ever. Let me tell you how long that is. If you were to have a sparrow fly to Mount Everest once every 10,000 years and sharpen his beak on the top of the mountain. By the time that that sparrow had worn the mountain down to a piece of gravel, eternity has not started. Eternity is forever. How long is that? It's forever. There is no end to it. There is always enough time to do everything that you in a holy way have ever wanted to do. Time for relationship, time for enjoyment, time for worship. All the things that make this life worth living are transformed and renewed forever. Now, if I could summarize the message of Revelation, what I would tell you is that it is about two things. It is about exhortation to believers, on the one hand, and evangelism to unbelievers, on the other. That it is about also two possible destinies, glory for those who are believers and judgment for those who are not. And they align with those two purposes. So I know that when I come to the end of a passage like this, I'm often going to wind up repeating myself and saying that the point of the passage is something very much similar to what you have been hearing up to now. And that is because for 22 chapters, God repeats the same ideas over and over and over and over so that we can either miss them or forget them. Amen? And so if you're a believer in Christ, then there is tremendous encouragement in this passage and tremendous exhortation for you to live in light of this section of Scripture because glory awaits you. And of a type and kind that you and I can't at the moment fully imagine or even apprehend it with our imagination. God will dwell with you face to face in a place where the greatest treasures of all of human history, of all of the planet, are building materials in that place. Where you will get a magnificent, joyful eternity of doing the very thing for which you were made, of dwelling in God's presence face to face and joyfully enjoying Him and glorifying Him forever. It will be like that scene, you know, probably my favorite book of the Chronicles of Narnia is The Last Battle, where they all die and they all go live with with Aslan in eternity. And when they get there, one of the characters says, Here I found my true home, the place I've been looking for my entire life. I never knew it till now, but this is it. This is my true home. And since that is true, that that is what awaits us. That eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. There is nothing that he can ask us to do now which is too much to ask. There is no step of obedience that he can ask us that is too hard for us to take. There's no hardship, no trial that is too much to endure, especially in comparison with the weight of glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. And the fact is, men and women, that God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower and enable us to to do all that he commands in every one of our present moments, whatever they are, because he knows that glory is coming. And he wants to equip us through that. If you're not a believer in Christ, then be very aware that if you die in unbelief, that these things will not be yours. If you die in unbelief, you will miss out on All these things. No one unclean whose sins have not been washed away by grace through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection will enter this place and dwell with God. Not one single person. His holiness would consume you if you tried. So if that is you. I invite you to do what the Bible says. To repent. To change your mind about who Jesus is. And in that same moment, believe in His death for your sins as your substitute. In His resurrection from the dead to give you new life. Because that action of turning away from the life that you're living and turning toward Jesus and putting your faith in Him, changes your eternal destiny forever. From death to life, from judgment to glory, from separation to joyful presence with God for all eternity. But you will have to humble yourself and turn from your life of sin towards Christ to receive the new life that he offers freely anyone who puts their trust in him for salvation. Now, let me say one more thing. These things, this chapter, this section of scripture, should fill us with such confident hope that we can face any future, any future, that may come our way. Pastor Josh and I were talking about this this passage in this chapter this week, and he, he asked me a question. He said, Hey, let me ask you a question. He said, Do you ever wonder what it was that caused those who were martyred, those who gave their life for their faith, that enabled them to go with such serene confidence to their death? And I was like, hmm. Let me think about that. He goes, I'll tell you the answer. He's a good pastor. He says, it's because they really believed in the glory to come. They really believed that God was going to keep his word. They really believed that when their last moment came, that they were going to step from it into the presence of the Savior. Amen. So let me ask all of us, because here's the deal. We all know this to be true. We live in a day of fearfulness and challenges. There are people in our culture who literally, as I stand here before you, are spreading fear like it's their job, because actually it is their business model is dependent on sowing as much fear as possible and as many people as possible. And that's true basically on uh, news channels on the right and the left, political parties on the right and the left uh, prosper to the degree that they sow fear among the people on the other side of the aisle of what will happen if so-and-so comes to power. Well, if so-and-so comes to power, this is what's going to happen, and you should be very afraid. Well, if this person comes to power, this is what's going to happen, and you should be very afraid. Let me tell you something. If this is true, and it is, then we should have no fear of the future. We should be able to go into our future, whatever it is, with absolute confident peace. Because we believe in the glory to come. Do you believe in the glory to come? You should. It's in the Word. You should believe what's here. But if we do believe, then it to make us fearless in whatever is to come tomorrow. Because we know that the weight of glory far exceeds anything facing us between now and then. Amen? So let's pray and let's ask God to give us that kind of fearlessly joyful, hopeful faith. That is confident in His promises, Amen. Let's pray, God, our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your promises. We are thankful that You proclaim to us in Your Word things that we could not know, things that we uh, would not know apart from You revealing them uh, to us and proclaiming them uh, for us. And Father, we are grateful for these promises. We are grateful for knowing that the world of of absolute sinless perfection awaits us. That we will dwell face to face with you. And that there will never be night or death or sin or mourning or crying or pain anymore. That all of the former things of this life will one day pass away and we will enjoy and glorify you with everything we are for eternity. Father, we look forward to that day we pray that it might make us fearlessly, joyfully faithful to you in the meantime. Father, give us fearless, joyful, expectant faith today by your Holy Spirit. And for whatever is to come in 2021 and 2022 and the years to come, Father, help us to live in a way that is fearlessly, joyful, knowing that you are on the other end. We pray in Jesus' name.